0: Thank you, Peyton, and good morning. My name's Eric Barton, and I get to pastor down here. You've heard that passage read, and if you were paying attention, you will have heard that passage sung and referred to throughout of our worship set this morning as we've gathered together to worship. I wonder, as we prepare to look at the text that Peyton just read, if you've ever had this kind of experience, maybe you've had the opportunity to tour some great palatial royal manor, or maybe even here in the US, maybe you've toured like the Biltmore Estate or something like that. I can remember many, many years ago uh, in high school, I had the opportunity to go on a, on a trip to Europe and they traipsed us around all these massive French estates in the Loire River Valley. And there was all these huge chateaus and I have the directional capacity of a slug. I have no idea which way anything is, including up or down. And so I would be in the middle of these incredible gardens, these massive palatial chateaus, and I would always get lost and I had no idea where I was. I would just taking it in. But because I didn't know where I was, because I didn't really know the extent and the expanse of what I was experiencing, I wasn't really fully enjoying it until finally, for us tourists, they would have a little sign on one of the corners of one of the walls, and they would have that all-important red dot, You are here. Now, that little red dot made it massively important to center and to orient myself to say, okay, here's the grandeur, here's the glory of everything in which I find myself. But now, practically, personally, and pertinently, this is where I am. This is where I exist in the midst of all this glory, grandeur, greatness. And so I could more further experience it. I could more further enjoy it. That's precisely what this little three-verse paragraph is this morning that we've already heard read. It is the red dot in the middle of the glory and the grandeur and the grace that says, you are here. It's our big idea for the morning. It's not super fantastic or exotic. It's simply, you are here, but you have to know You individually, you corporately, you have to know where you are in the midst of this great glory, grandeur, and grace so that you can actually functionally, practically walk around in your life and literally enjoy it. Now, we've just had this marvelous church hymn about the supremacy of Christ, verses 15 through 18, 15 through 20 in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul told us of the supremacy of Christ. It's the hinge, central apex verse of this little epistle of Colossians. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 1, where the theme of this little four-chapter epistle to the people of Colossae is the supremacy of Christ, But he's also writing a little bit more functionally, a little bit more practically, a little bit more applicationally, because 30 years after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Christ, the Messiah, three decades in, their doctrine, their theology, their confession is beginning to erode ever so slightly because there are these false teachers that are coming in and they're sowing disinformation. Can that happen in a church? Absolutely it can. And so Paul writes to tell them of the supremacy of Christ, this universal truth, to address a local error or heresy. And so the the practical theme for the book of Colossians is Confronting and correcting conflict with the kingship of Christ. Confronting and correcting conflict with the kingship of Christ. That's the great common denominator that settles everything. Now, we're only so far in chapter 1 of the book of Colossians. This is our fourth sermon together in our summer sermon series in the book of Colossians, where we had verses 3 through 8 is one very long sentence telling us of our salvation. More precisely, our justification that God has found us guilty but declared us righteous. He changes his mind about us. And then verses 9 through 20 is just one very long run-on sentence telling us about who this Jesus is and what he is accomplishing in us. That is our sanctification. And so now we pivot to verse 21. But before we get there, I need to lay some flagstones. I need to lay some paving stones for us to walk on. So stay where you are in Colossians 1. I want to read something from the book of Job. Perhaps some of the earliest literature we have in human history. There's a couple things from Egypt that are probably a little bit older, but generally speaking, Job is at least 4,000 years old. So this is ancient wisdom, and that tells us there is a human condition that Job, the author, the writer, the one who's experiencing these things, He's he's describing for us because there's a fundamental human issue. Job chapter 9, I'm going to begin reading in verse 29. Job confesses this because his three buddies have been telling him how the world works, explaining the economy of how the world actually spins, and Job actually knows better. But he says in verse 29, I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? What is the purpose of life? I'm trying my best But I'm never going to have right standing before a holy God. I'm I'm never going to be able to achieve it or accomplish it. Verse 30, if I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lie, meaning if I do my very best efforts to expunge myself from all of my error, it doesn't work. Yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. There is nothing I can do to rid myself of my own stain. No matter how hard I try, there's always going to be something, whether in thought or word or deed, that's going to be against me. I cannot have right standing before a holy God. Verse 32. For he, speaking of God, is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. And then he says this amazing thing, verse 33. There is no arbiter, there is no reconciler, there is no conciliator between us who might lay his hand on us both. 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years before the first coming of Christ, there is this Gentile, somewhere in Mesopotamia-ish, that's going, I need somebody who can lay his hand on the divine and can, who, who can lay his hand on humankind. But nobody can lay their hand on the divine because he's God, unless this one in the middle is God. And no one can lay his hand on sin because that's a human issue, unless there is one who is also human, And so the Apostle Paul takes this little three-verse paragraph to say, you guys, you guys, this is that. The thing that Job was pining for two millennia earlier, it's happened. It's Jesus. He is the one who is both God and man, who can lay his hand on the Father, as it were, who can also lay his hand on mankind because he's also human forever and evermore. And he bridges that gap between God's glory and man's sin, and he draws them together. This is very good news. It's the greatest news. It is the gospel. We say it all the time. The gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself, oh, and one another. There is no greater story. Now, we use that definition all the time around here, but I want to show you a particular passage that really sheds some light on that and gives some meat and bone. So now then, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, the apostle Paul writes, And you, so he's just giving them this marvelous hymn of the supremacy of Christ, And you... Plural, y'all, yuns, you guys, however you want to say it. And you, let me remind you of who you are. In the first 12 verses of Colossians 1, there are 14 mentions of y'all, plural. It's an identity passage. In view of all that Christ has done, here's who y'all are. Here's who God is. This is what he's like. This is what he's done. Therefore, here's who you are. Now, you have to understand that because in all of human history, there are only two religions. There's only two. Oh, they come in different flavors and formats, but there are only two religions. There is the religion, when I say religion, I mean the organizing narrative of your life. There is the organizing narrative, the religion that says what you have to do to try to accomplish right standing before a holy God. You've got to do these things. You've got to meditate. You've got to accomplish these tasks. You've got to observe the sevenfold path. You've got to hold up the five pillars. You've got to do all of these things. Every religion in the world centers on what you have to do. And then there is Christianity. The only one that says, you must emphasize and focus on that which has been done for you by another, by grace. Only two religions. Now what happens is in every case where there is a church, that promotes and proclaims and presents that organizing narrative of substitution and grace, inevitably, someone will come in and try to sow the seed of the other religion. Okay, that's cute and all, but you've got to do a thing. And so Paul is going to provide what I like to call the inky black velvet, the black, black backdrop, so that he can then sprinkle on some diamonds. Those of you who have shopped for an engagement ring, you know this, you don't just go to a tire shop and they throw a ring in your face. No, 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 no. You go to the jeweler and they put out this jet black velvet with the lighting is just so and then they put the ring on that velvet so that it will really gleam and sparkle. Verse 21 is that black velvet. And you who once were alienated or your translation might say estranged or separate or cut off You had no part with God by default. From conception, you were outside. Because of the tremors that reverberated forward from Genesis chapter 3, sin entered the world and it was the original pandemic that affected everybody and everything. All of creation is under curse because of the sin of mankind. You were, he says, alienated and hostile in mind. Now, you might hear that and go, Well, I, I get that. I got a neighbor. Uh, who's hostile to mine because he's just not that bright, but not like me. I'm actually kind of great. I just need a nudge or a boost every now and then because I get it. I get it. If you've grown up at all in this part of the country, you probably went to a church or a VBS or a Sunday school and you were taught at a very young, early age about heaven and hell and Hell was horrifying and you didn't want to go there. And so you generally learned how to self-regulate your depravity and be generally moral and decent, at least by outward appearances, so that you didn't anger this allegedly holy God. And then the rest of your life has become one giant manifestation of you sort of trying to manage your sin and sort of deal with this generally disinterested but probably cranky God, which is an evidence of hostility against God. And your Bible, from the table of contents straight through to the maps, is trying to deconstruct that hostility against God, who knows that he's good and gracious and loving. And we think, no, no, he's the headmaster, and I've got to sneak around and do what I want, because I don't want to get caught, because that hell thing sounded pretty horrible, but there's a lot of things I want to do in my time. Sovereign, you say, oh, no, No one will tell me how to live. No one will tell me what to do with my life or my body. Can you just imagine a culture and a context in which people were thinking that normatively? I know it's hard to imagine. You've heard me talk about the Gnostics of ancient Greece and what Paul and John and Peter were writing against. But listen, there's nothing new under the sun. It is the exact same issue that we deal with in the 21st century in North America. I reject sovereignty. And so we are hostile in mind. I will do the important things, God. If you are, then I just need you to come along every now and then and do the hard things. Give me a boost and a nudge. We have this tendency to think that we are net neutral, that we're generally innocent. Sometimes we make mistakes, no big whoop. I just need a little polish and a little shine to get back to where I was. And Paul says, that's actually an evidence of your hostility in mind—that's who you were by default. You're Gentiles in South Central Turkey. You're outside of the covenant community, the Messianic people of Israel. You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now you might hear that and go, "I've never knocked over a liquor store. I don't. I don't speed in school zones unless I'm late and if, you know unless I just feel like it. I don't. I don't say horrible, horrible, indecent things." No, maybe not. Yet, see, sin is anything that proceeds apart from faith, Romans 14, 23. It is not all these wicked, heinous deals where you're jumping around a black candle in a goat's head going blah, blah, blah. Nobody really does that. Nobody nobody even shopped for those. That's not evil deeds. Evil deeds is when you are elevating yourself, when you are ascending the throne of your own sovereignty. Let me be super clear on this. Most of us, particularly in Christendom, we think sin is all this fun stuff that a curmudgeon, cranky God doesn't want us to enjoy. He really just sort of wants us to be miserable until we die. And then we'll get a harp and a cloud and a halo. I don't know where that comes from. That's a far side cartoon. That's not biblical. That's not real. No, sin is not all these heinous things. It's simply ascending the throne of my own sovereignty. And no, God does not want you to be miserable. He wants us to have life and life abundant. But Paul says, here's the bad news. For you to really get the glimmer of the good news, you have to understand the badness of the bad news. This is who you were from conception. You were hopeless, helpless, and hapless. But praise God, there is verse 22. He has now reconciled. The very thing that Job is asking for, Paul says, God did in Christ. Job says, I need a conciliator, an arbiter, a reconciler to lay his hand on us both. Does Job know exactly what he's asking for? No, probably not. But under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, I need someone to stand in between and put his hand on that shore and on that shore and draw these two continental divide land masses together. And so Paul says, that's who you were. Let me tell you what God did. Not what you must do, Not in there. Not in there. Let me tell you what God did. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh. Now, this is huge. Paul does something very particular and precise because the the teachers of the day were saying Jesus could not have been human. He just seemed to be. He wasn't really a human being because, I mean... Matter is gross and the real you lives on the inside. And so Jesus was either just some angelic presence that the spirit of the Christ fell on him or he just sort of as a phantasm and he just floated around. But he certainly also could not have been God because God was way, 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 way back in eternity past and you had to ascend the rungs on the ladder to get to him. So he wasn't really man, he wasn't really human. And Paul says, stop it. I stab you in the face with that error. no. He is both God and man. And he did what he did in his body of flesh because he's human. Now, for the unbeliever in our day and age, they have a really hard time believing that Jesus is God. Because if they admit that Jesus is God, then it's just a matter of the intellect and logic to go, well, if he's God, then I bend the knee and I bow because he's God. Therefore, by definition, he must be sovereign. But they cannot do that. Their mind is darkened, Paul will say. But to the Christian, sometimes we have a hard time remembering and practically applying the reality that Jesus is also 100% human. We have this tendency to think of Jesus as his blonde hair, blue-eyed, narrow nose, walking around in chacos, floating slightly above the earth, speaking in King James for some reason. And that's not Jesus. He ate fish. He told jokes. I bet really good jokes too. And he is the one who put his hand on the Father and the hand on us. And he brought them together in his death. (laughs) See, see, you know this because you've been in church, but it doesn't lightning strike you to the very soul, but it should. Particularly if you've just read verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And by him, all things were created for him, by him, and through him. And he holds all things together. And he died. Naked. Beaten. Scorned. Spat upon by the very ones he loved and created. And he died. God died. Now that obliterates every other form of organizing narrative in existence. You just can't have that. God died. Do I mean that God ceased to exist? I don't mean that. I mean the second member of the Godhead Trinity became like that which he wanted to save, and he became, we already saying this, we already took communion to this effect. He became all of the sin, iniquity, trespass, rebellion, and revulsion of us by default, and he nailed it to his cross. We'll talk about that in chapter 2. Paul does an amazing presentation of the gospel in just a couple sentences. Verse 22, he has now reconciled. Notice the verb tense. He's done it. Past tense, finished. he, He did it. He did it. Not you, not me. He did the thing. He's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He really died. He didn't just seem to be dead. He wasn't mostly dead all day. He was dead dead and he was buried and he rose, and he was seen by hundreds, and he ascended. In order to, oh, there's a so that to all of this. You always look for the so that's in your Bible. It's answering the sole question of why. Why would Jesus do this? Because we needed a boost, is what the text does not say, does not say that in order to or so that he might present us. Now, can, I just, can, I just, can, we, can we talk? Colossians 1.22. Maybe. One of my very favorite verses in the whole of Scripture. And here's why. Yes, because it's doctrinal, theological. Yes, because it's soteriological. It talks about our salvation and all that. But more personally, it's because Paul alliterates. That's right. Paul alliterates. This is an early church creed. He reconciled us. That letter starts with the Greek letter alpha, the Greek A. He reconciled us, starts with an A, in order that or so that he could present us. Now what does it mean to present us? There's a lot of different theories on this. More than likely, almost certainly, Paul's talking about when a Christian, a member of his body, the church, is presented to himself at the Bema throne judgment. We read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we are given reward <laughs> for the good work that Jesus is doing in us. And he rewards us for it. Hello. Sign me up. What a deal. We are rewarded for that which he has given us. The talents, the gifts that he's given us, we are given reward for that. So he's, he's doing a thing to make us, and then he'll say, holy, blameless, and unreprovable. And in the original text, all three of those start also with the Greek letter alpha or A. So it's reconciled to be holy, blameless, and unreprovable or above reproach. Now, I gotta tell you, you and I should hear that And either laugh out loud or stand up and shout hallelujah. Because if we really got that, what Paul just said in verse 21, there is no way those who are hostile in mind and outside separated, alienated and estranged from God can be called holy, blameless and above reproach. Now, what he doesn't call us is holy, holy, holy. For only God is holy, holy, holy and never experienced blemish or reproach, but we have. And look what God is doing in us. These fallen beings from conception, he takes them, he reconciles them, he puts his hand on the Father, he puts his hand on us and he draws us together and he makes us not holy, 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 no. But what becomes true of the Son becomes true of sons and daughters. We are holy, blameless and above reproach. No accusation And let me tell you, when you understand that, when you actually stand in that and you walk around in your everyday life as though that's true, that is spiritual warfare. Forget all your naming and claiming and rebuking of dark powers. Forget about it. Your enemy, the devil, stands in the throne room of God and God's not threatened and he hurls accusations day and night relentlessly against you. But this passage says, because of what God has done in Christ to reconcile his accusations fall empty to the floor. And it makes him mad as hell because he's right. And yet, God has changed his mind how to see you. He sees you only as in Christ, reconciled. It is finished. It's an amazing truth. So there's this wonderful early church creed, these three A words that is who we are, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Before him, he's the one doing this for himself. Just like creation, he did it by his own power for himself. He is doing a work in and through us for himself. That's how concerned and committed he is about this. Verse 23, ah, here's the confusing and perhaps convicting word in the entirety of the Bible. If, this is what we call a denomination maker or a denomination breaker. What's Paul doing saying if? Can you lose all of this? If, he says, indeed you continue in the faith. That little word continue, literally persevere. Let me be super quick and clear. This is not a salvation condition. It's absolutely not what is in view. If you persevere in the faith means the content of your confession In that which is, that Jesus has reconciled us. Not that you continue to believe. That is not the grammar. That is not what Paul is saying. If you persevere in the content of your confession, he says, stable and steadfast, not shifting. So we've got this wonderful little triad. Again, you had holy, blameless, unreprovable. You must continue on being, there in verse 23, stable, steadfast, not shifting. Continue on. Persevere. This wonderful old Anglican pastor, Dick Lucas, used to put it this way, and I love this talking about this passage. He said, "We are saved by what Christ has done for us, not by what Christ is doing in us. He is doing the thing in us; that is our sanctification, and it is a wonderful thing. But that's not what saves us. We are saved by what Christ has done for us in His body of flesh by His death at the cross. We are saved." Period. You are in Christ because God the Father has decided, past tense, at a point in time, to see you in Christ. Can you lose your salvation? Sure, just as soon as Jesus sins and gets kicked out of heaven. Short of that, Paul is not trying to threaten them or beat them with a stick of fear. He's spurring them on. He's motivating them. Listen, you guys, do not allow additives to come into your foundation. Now, this is some of the most brilliant writing. Paul's never been to Colossae, right? He got to Ephesus. He's there three years plus. Colossae is 100 miles to the east of Ephesus. Paul never went there, but he knew enough about it from his buddy Epaphras. He knew that Colossae was this beautiful little rural community surrounded by fruit trees at the base of the Cadmus Mountains. And Colossae was built on a very significant geological fault. They were prone to earthquakes. This language, not shifting, is literally earthquake. Now, this is amazing. We know that Paul's writing this little epistle to the Colossians during his first Roman imprisonment somewhere between 60 and 62 A.D. Here's what's crazy. We know from extra biblical record and history that in A.D. 60, Colossi was absolutely wiped out by an earthquake. So either... Paul is writing to comfort them. Hey, I know bad things happen in this world, in this life, and I'm comforting you. Do not add to the foundation. It's probably going to shake, but you have a firm foundation. Do not add wood, hay, and stubble into your slab. Or, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is writing to them to say, Hey, listen, keep your slab sacrosanct, keep it pure, because it's going to be attacked. And sure enough, perhaps maybe only a matter of months after they received this letter, was the city wiped out. Now, they rebuilt it. It was never the same. What's interesting is our circumstances are to have no bearing on our foundation. Did you hear that? We don't change the, set, the foundation and the slab of our confession just because of what all might be going on. They started, these false teachers would come in and say, hey, that Jesus thing is great and all, but you've got to add in this, and you've got to add in that, and then the whole thing begins to crumble. It's the same words Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about not building your house on the sandy land build it on the rock and don't add to that slab keep it pure it's going to be under assault it's going to, they're going to try to shake it hold on persevere continue in the content of your confession that is your faith if indeed you persevere in the content of your confession stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel ah there finally, finally, finally for those of you who are paying attention not even me is the closed parentheses that harkens back all the way when Paul sort of opens a parentheses in chapter 1, verse 5, when he talks about we who have faith and have love and joy that springs from hope. Don't let your hope be corrupted. Don't let your hope be corroded. Hold to your hope. So that you and I will die one day and go to heaven. Not what he's talking about. That's great and all. That's wonderful. That's praise God kind of news. But in the meantime, that we will have love and joy because of our hope. Is that a practical thing for us in this day and age? Oh my word, everybody in the world, seven and a half billion of us, you know what we're all looking for universally? Love and joy. What about my real practical walk around? I just, I just want to be happy. Oh, okay. Then you must have an authentic, real hope. The book of Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a confidence gives joy. Ah, Paul knows what he's talking about here. Do not waver. Do not swerve from your hope so that you can have love and joy. It makes the heart sick when we don't have love and joy. What do we call that? Well, we're very, we're very smart and we're very clever in our day and age. We don't say things like sin and heart sickness and soul weariness, we say dysfunction. We say pathologies. We say chronic, incurable mental distresses. Okay, great. What you need is love and joy. I'm not discounting chemical imbalances or mental struggles or anything else whatsoever. But what I'm saying is, what the Bible, which is reading us more than we're reading it, is telling us, we need love and joy. Paul says, do not swerve, do not waver from the hope that you had at the beginning. Because of what God will do in the future, because of what he has done in the past, you've been given all that you need for life and godliness here in the present. Holding, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this good news, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So is Paul just showing off his letter jacket? Check me out, apostle, four years running, that's right. No, he's combating the Gnostics. These guys that were saying, hey, you want to be in the spiritually elite? You want to be the the varsity? Then you got to come to us for your secret knowledge. We'll tell you how to add some stuff into your foundation. Paul says, no, this gospel, it ain't unique to your area. It's been proclaimed under all heaven. Does that mean that Paul somehow made it over to the Incas in Central America? No, of course not. The world at that time was the known Roman empire. And some far-reaching areas off to the east, but the gospel had gone forth. The same one, there was no secret. There was no special spiritual elites that you had to go and learn all of their secrets. No, Paul says, it's been proclaimed. This has been God's plan from the very beginning and I am merely the mouthpiece. In other words, what Paul is saying, please hear this, to the Colossians then and to the East Texans now, You don't need another experience to add on to your salvation or your sanctification. You merely need to enjoy and experience that which has already been done for you. You are here. You're not trying to get to us. No, you're here. You're here. Enjoy and experience that. You need add nothing. You simply grow into what you have been redemptively recreated to be. Let me give you three very quick implications to summarize and to repeat and to be redundant and to say the same thing all over again, very quickly. Just to sort of try to land this plane so that we can walk out with these truths for our lives. You are here in the midst of all the glory, all the grandeur, all the gospel, and all the grace. It's important to orient yourself. This is where I am so that I can enjoy and experience all of my surroundings. This is what the gospel is telling us. So in view of that, let me reiterate the inky black velvet, the bad news. We sin because we're sinners. You may hear them go, yeah, no, no, I know. I've been in church. I know that. Let me, let, me, let me be very more anthropological on this. Sometimes the gospel might not seem like it's very good news to us, and that's because deep down we don't really believe or understand or appreciate just how the bad news is about us, that from conception we are separated apart alienated, and estranged from God. So it'll be very, very precise. Sinning doesn't make us sinners. Sin is what we do because of what we are by nature from conception. Everything we do by nature is apart from faith. That means even the good and moral and decent stuff that we do while we're self-regulating and managing our sin, even that good, moral, decent stuff is sin because it rejects the sovereignty and the good of God. It is apart from faith. We don't come into this world innocent or net neutral and then after a while just sort of stub our toe. We need God to sort of clean us up a little bit and get us back on our campaign. That is a hostile mind against God. No, we are totally depraved from conception. Our heart and our mind is bent toward evil. That means, like Job confessed, we are hopeless, helpless, and hapless to be reconciled in any way whatsoever on our own merits or efforts. And so it renders every other system of religion or organizing narrative invalid and useless less. We need someone or something else to provide rescue and reconciliation on our behalf. And they have to do so by grace because there's nothing we can offer that person in return. Now that's a pretty unique individual that has the power to put his hand on both God and the sin of mankind to reconcile them, but will do it bearing the cost for free. If you find a being like that, you better cling and clutch to that one. There's the old 20th century pastor from San Diego, S.M. Lockridge. S.M. Lockridge. Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. I think your kid's that. He just had this wonderful, great sermon, and all he kept saying was, that's my king. That's my king. Now remember, Paul is writing this during his first Roman imprisonment, chained to a Roman soldier. And he's talking about this Jesus, the Christ, the death-proof king, who dies for the sin, error, and rebellion of his subjects. (laughs) You think the centurion is sitting there hearing this dictated out loud going, oh, I'm sure Nero would die for me too. (laughs) No, Nero will set me on fire just if he sneezes twice. And so what Paul is proclaiming is high treason against the crown. But the centurion does not snuff Paul out. He wants to hear more. You see, this is a compelling story. The gospel has to be front-ended by some bad news. This is the gospel. But wait, but wait, there's more. We say this all the time. It's not super clever. It's not very creative, but it's just foundationally true. And it goes like this. Number two, God did the thing. (laughs) That's the gospel. God did the thing. All other religions emphasize what you have to do. The gospel of God emphasizes and focuses on what God has done in Christ. He did it. I want to just remind you, we're nearing the first chapter completion in the book of Colossians. And I know for some of you, it's driving you crazy. We haven't had an imperative yet. There's been no instruction, no telling you what to do, nothing. You know why? Because God did the thing. You and I simply receive it. We believe it. We enjoy it. We experience it. There's no imperatives whatsoever. If it's to be, it is not up to me. If it's to be, it ain't even up to ye. It's up to he. Don't you see? just made that up. God did the thing and God's gonna see it through. We're gonna see this more explained, more beautifully later on in this epistle, but it's the same language almost exactly as the book of Ephesians. Tom, have you heard of Ephesians? It's in the Bible. Ephesians, where Paul tells husbands, Love your wives. And this is where all the husbands go, oh boy, I roll, groan, grown, grown, No, 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 no. It's a deeply theological, ecclesiological, Christological passage in Ephesians 5. And Paul will get there in Colossians 3 as well. But he says, love your wives just as Christ loves the church. And what does he do? He washes and cleans her. He makes her pure and spotless and holy without blemish so that he can present her to himself. Nowhere in that passage or here in Colossians do you see Jesus does this so that you can get to work on perfecting and cleaning yourself. Nope. God did the thing. God's doing a thing. God will do the thing. That's really good news. And you know what happens? Here's the crazy thing because I know some of you are like, yes, but what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Rewind. Be a child of the king. Be a child of the king. And then, out of that attitude, your actions will bear fruit. Not your fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. As long as you're focusing on all the things you have to do, congratulations, you're in a hamster wheel. But when you are mindful of whose you are, who He has declared you to be, how He chooses to see you and me, that changes everything in your entire sphere of influence. So again, in a single word, Our confession, the content, the slab of our foundation is substitution. Every other organizing narrative, every other religion, what you've got to do, not ours, substitution. The innocent died in the place of the guilty. Yes, but you also have to stop it. I'm not going to allow you to corrupt my slab. Yes, but you have to have like 17 highlighters and Instagram and a devotional book and you got to read Jesus' calling in French and you got to do all these things. Stop it. Get that out of your slab. Have a quiet time, praise God, yes, but because you get to. It's because you get to sit down and open the Proverbs, open the Psalms, and see the heart of God made clear to you by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And you will eat a light bulb if it means you get to sit down and spend time with God and His Word. Not I have to, I gotta do the thing so that God won't be mad at me. Oh, Christian, that's not life, that's labor. That's not it, God did the thing. This is why we take communion together and why it's an experiential activity that we actually take into ourselves. We are to be weakly, kinesthetically, experientially reminded that he did it. Number three, pull this right out of chapter 1, verse 23. Enduring obedience is the evidence of faith. Enduring obedience is the evidence of faith, not the accomplishment of anything It simply demonstrates. It proves. This is Paul's point in Romans 12. Then you will dokimazo. You will be the demonstration, the the showcase, the preview of coming attractions. Now, when I say obedience, I know that we come from a legalistic, moralistic, behavioristic kind of culture and society. We think obedience. Okay, aligning my actions to a code of conduct, putting my behavior uh, with a set of rules and regulations. Stop it! No, that's not what the Bible means by obedience ever ever. Oh, I know you're thinking the 10 commandments. Ha ha ha. Jesus fulfilled all that. Would you do that? Of course you will. By the fruit of the spirit. Obedience is remembering and recognizing Who God is, what he has done in Christ. He is the conciliator, the reconciler, the arbiter that has laid his hand on the Father, laid his hand on sinful man and joined them together. That is receiving and believing and walking around in the power of the gospel. That's obedience. Not adding to your slab, not trying to bedazzle your foundation. That's silly. Don't do that. Enduring obedience is the evidence of faith. As a free side note, really quickly, That's also good parenting, good grandparenting, good neighboring, good Sunday school youth workers. Not merely trying to indoctrinate our children with rules and regulations and codes of conduct, but instead taking their little hearts and transforming them into be vessels who love virtue. Because of whose they are. They're yours. They have your last name. What are your virtues? What are your values? You find yourself always going, stop that, stop that, stop that, stop that, stop that. Good luck. It's never, it's never gonna scale. But if you can remind them who they are and whose they are and what they are all about, you dignify, you ennoble, and they begin to live in a way that shocks you. And you go, where did that come from? And they go, Mom, it's the gospel. Get over it. What'd you expect? You are here. Now, I had to show you how bad the bad news is to give you the greatness of the good news, but let me just end with this. I had the opportunity to visit a couple of your life groups this past week, and we've been talking about the great news of the gospel and what it will mean for our community. Way back in the book of Isaiah, God has poured out his language of judgment and uh, punishment candidly and condemnation on the nation of Israel. But in chapter 40, he pivots. He says, but I love you. And despite all of your rebellion, all of your revulsion, I'm going to woo you back. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to do a new thing of redemptive recreation in you. In fact, he says, by the time you get to chapter 55, it's going to be like the briar and the bramble, these dead sort of thorny tumbleweed things. They're dead and they have no redeeming quality whatsoever. They're just out there. They're scattered, just blowing around. But I'm going to take them. I'm going to plant them, and from the bramble and the briar will spring up cypress and myrtles, these evergreen, everlives, a new creation. Behold, all things are new, and this is what I'm going to do in you, God says to Israel. And then the Apostle Paul picks up on that here in Colossians. And also in 2 Corinthians 5, and he says, Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You were a thorn bush. You were a briar. You were a bramble. But God has made you a cypress and a myrtle, ever live, ever green. Now stand and nourish the nations. Cling to the hope that you have. There is love. There is joy. That's the foundation of your faith. You are here. Enjoy it and experience it. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the gospel that you in Christ have reconciled us, redeemed us to yourself and even to one another. So we pray, Father, that you would continue to sound forth the gospel in our souls and that we would not strive or we would not vie to accomplish or achieve. but We would simply be and that you by your spirit would bear fruit because of the finished work of your son Jesus as we, your covenant community, continue to be standing as trees in the center of this community. Father, we pray if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, who is still trying to align themselves to some code of conduct of some other organizing narrative, would you use this passage to lead them into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus? That they would step out of death into life. For the rest of us, Father, we confess that just like the church at Colossae, perhaps there are things that are vying for our attention to try to make us add additives to our foundation of the gospel. Would you give us clarity and wisdom to refute those and to remove those so that there would be life and fruit and life abundant. Father, thanks for the time to be in your presence as your people, in your word, by your spirit. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.